Hey, good morning. You know, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, my wife and I and our family have been a part of the church for a long time, and I never thought I would say the word potentate um, <laughs> while being here. But uh, we just sang potentate of time, but, uh, which is appropriate because I think, what does potentate mean anyway? The ruler or, okay. The big kahuna. The big kahuna of time, yeah. Uh, that's kind of what I guessed, but I, it just shows how, like, I don't know, not very smart I am. What's that? The Fez hat? So, and you guys are, that, that would be more distracting than normal. So, um, <laughs> no, but the reality is a happy new year. It's just kick off to the 2024, so happy new year. And, um, you know, I don't know about you, but if, if uh, I feel really, really loud too, Paige. I don't know if, do I feel loud to you? No? I don't like hearing myself. I'm not sure how you can listen to me because I don't like listening to me um, when I'm really loud. But, uh, you know, this week is the kickoff. We, you know, last Sunday was Christmas Eve. I mean, New Year's Eve. This week was the kickoff to the new year. And I don't know about you, but, like, this week was kind of like an emotionally just kind of weird week for me. There wasn't anything, like, dramatic that happened. But, you know, for all of Advent, there's lots of things that kind of put, a put out of my mind. And we, we reflect and sing about things like that, you know, Jesus' light come into this world and who guides us in the pathway of peace and peace on earth, goodwill toward men and joy to the world. And, and then kind of like, you know, there's this mad rush all the way through New Year's. And then after New Year's, like you wake up and you, all those things that you kind of put out of your mind um, during the Advent season are still there. And we feel like things are far from bringing peace on earth or peace in my own soul or peace in my relationships with other people or do you guys know what I'm talking about? You know, in Jesus, you know, we're going to be jumping right back into John this morning again as a church. If you're visiting with us, we've been studying through the Gospel of John and, and we'll be finishing the Gospel of John shortly after Easter, Lord willing. And, you know, we've been, we've been in this part of the Gospel of John where it's the night before, it's the night that Jesus is actually betrayed the very night. And he's in the upper room with his disciples and he's giving his disciples some teaching. And he knows that like their whole world is going to unravel for them in just a few like hours. And so these are like this, what we've been looking at since John 13 is Jesus like teaching to the disciples about what he wanted them to know before he went to the cross. And in chapter 16, we've, we, before Advent, we heard some things like uh, that, that Jesus is going to depart from them and, and that there's going to be this hostility that they experience in the world and that there's going to be, that he's going to send his Holy Spirit upon his church and the Holy Spirit's going to guide them in the truth. And, and what we're, the passage we're going to look at today is the very end of Jesus' like, teaching that night. These are his last words of teaching to his disciples before he goes to the cross. Starting next week, Lord willing, we'll see um, his last prayer for his disciples. Um, but this is his teaching, and I think it's a really important teaching because he's preparing his disciples for the trouble that they're going to face in the hours to come. And I think, and I think it's, it's important for us, too, because this world, we, we, we'll see this at the end of the text, in this world we have trouble and we have tribulation, and as we enter into 2024, like Jesus is, is going to talk in this text about joy and how to have courage and joy in this troubled world. And I think it's a great message for us because our world is troubled. It will be troubled every single day until Jesus comes back. 
And, and he's, he's lived and served us and teaches us so that we can experience joy in this troubled world. So we have two of my outlines, really simple. Um, it breaks out into two parts. In verses 16 through 22, there's this, uh, Jesus talks about them having joy when they cannot see in verses 16 through 22. And then the second point is that is having a joy arising from full faith or complete faith in verses 23 through 33. And so please stand with me as we read the text. I'm going to start reading at verse 12, even though our, we're going to be focusing on verse 16, just to give us a little bit of the context of Jesus' teaching. Yeah. Chapter 16, I'm sorry, John chapter 16, starting at verse 12. And then I'll pray and we'll, and we'll get into it. But here's God's word for his church, Jesus' words to his disciples. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. A little while, and you will no longer behold me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples therefore said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not behold me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father? And so they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and and you will not behold me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one takes your joy away from you. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for Jesus Christ and for his work and that he, um, his work opens up the doorway to us for a joy that can't be taken away. And, and, um, but we live in this world, um, Lord, that's filled with trouble. So I just ask that you would speak to us um, by your spirit, that you would um, use me to communicate your word, that you would open our hearts to hear it so that we could understand and believe and love Jesus more. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we get in here in the verses in, at the beginning of this text in verse 16 and 17, I hope you, got, you, you guys felt like that weird and somewhat awkward like repetition. Did you hear that as I was reading it? Like a little while. And, and then it's kind of funny because I think what, the, what, the, what John's trying to do there by, ha- by having this like repeated quoting of this statement, a little while, like you're going to see me and a little while you're not going to see me and then you will see me and this whole thing is, and, it, and having it repeat again and again and again is he's trying to highlight like the the foolishnesses of the disciples. It's kind of like in that great like literary work, Finding Nemo. <laughs> you know, when the seagulls, mine, 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 you know, like that whole thing. That's the disciples right now. A little while, a little while. What are you talking about a little while, right? Like, and then John's explicit about it, or they're explicit about it when they say it in verse eight, 18. We don't know what he's talking about, right? Like we have, so the disciples, it's one thing to hear the words of Jesus, another thing to understand the words of Jesus. And the disciples are doing lots of talking and very little like listening and no comprehending. You know, that the, they just can't understand what Jesus 
is talking about. No one bothered to ask Jesus. In fact, I don't think they dared to ask Jesus because earlier, if you remember this before Advent, if you were here during then, the disciples did ask Jesus lots of things and they didn't like the answers that they got. In fact, Jesus said, it, um, you know, in verse 12, where I started reading that he has lots of things he wants to teach them, but they can't bear them now. You know, because of the things that they'd heard, like sorrow had filled their heart. They didn't, they, they were just kind of overwhelmed. And then Jesus drops this like statement that this, this like riddle, this like really cryptic statement that they don't have any understanding of. And so they're just left confused and frustrated and sorrowful. And in verse 19, we see that Jesus like anticipates that he knows that and he speaks to that. And he's, and so he asks them the question, um, So Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together? And I won't bother to re-quote it again. Are you deliberating together about this thing? And and then he goes on to explain what he's talking about, but he doesn't explain what he's talking about in giving them all the details. He doesn't answer the question about specifically what he's talking about about a little while. But what he does is he tells them the emotional impact that they're soon to experience. Look what he says, I think it must be in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You know, what Jesus is talking about is that just hours from now, the disciples' whole life is going to unravel. Jesus is going to be betrayed by one of his inner circle. He's going to be taken away by like like several hundred like Roman soldiers. He's going to be put on trial. He's going to be, he's going to be like wrongly accused and convicted and condemned and beaten and crucified. And all that they had hoped and dreamed for is going to come to an end when the tomb slams shut over his dead body. You will weep and lament, Jesus is saying. Like you have no idea the emotions you're going to feel in the hours to come. Then he says something interesting. He says, but the world will rejoice. The world will rejoice. It's going to be made even worse because as you're like mourning like the loss of everything that you had hoped for, like the world around you is going to be like celebrating. You know, when he talks about, we talked about this like, you know, a month and a half ago or whatever, when we spoke about the world, like when Jesus talks about the world in in John, for the most part, he's talking about like the idolatries, all those things that we put as more important than God, the ideologies, all of those things that, that that we believe that rise up against Jesus Christ, the idolatries and the ideologies and those that are deceived by them, that's the world, are going to rejoice. Because Jesus, the Son of God, has been put into a grave, and the grave's been sealed. You know, and the reason why Jesus talked about it at the very beginning of his ministry, clear back in John chapter 3, you probably, if you were with us, you might remember this statement of Jesus. He says this, John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. That's a reference to himself. And the men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So what Jesus is saying is like, it's going to feel as if that the darkness has won the day. 
it's going to feel as if like the light has been extinguished forever. And the world around us, the world around you disciples is going to be celebrating that fact because they no longer have to bear the conviction that they feel for their disobedience to God. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. But Jesus goes on in verse 20, and he says this, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. You know, the amazing thing about what Jesus Christ has done for us is that the weeping and lamenting and sorrows of this world will not have their final say. Let me just say that again. The weeping and lamenting and sorrows of this world, as real as they are, they will not have the final say say. And Jesus says, your sorrow will be turned to joy. You know, he's talking about the events that are going to transpire in just the next few days. He's going to be buried in the grave, but then three days later, he's going to come out of the grave and their sorrow will be turned to joy. They're going to see the resurrected Lord and it's going to, we'll see this in a minute, it'll, it'll all make sense. You know, as we go into 2024, I think that's an important message for us because I don't know what 2024 holds for all of you. I don't know what it holds for me, but we, we believe in the potentate of time, right? I'm smart now. I'm dropping those big words. <laughs> Who, like, controls all things and who's sovereign over all things and to whom nothing is taken by surprise and who will shut down, like, lamenting and weeping and sorrow once for all one day. You know, and to, to illustrate the point to his disciples, he used an illustration which many of you, like, are familiar with. Verse 21, whenever a woman is in travail or in labor, she has sorrow. It's, it's way worse for the husband, let me tell you. I've been through it four times. <laughs> My email is Paul B. At, well, no. But, but what does it say? She has sorrow, but when she gives birth, verse 21, to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for the joy that a child has been born into this world. You know, there's this reality that the pain of childbirth, as sorrowful and as difficult as it is, when you come out the other side, no pun intended. <laughs> Sorry, did I say that out loud? When, I don't know what word to use. Uh, okay. When you make it through. It still doesn't work? What is it? When the baby is in your arms. Thank you. I was, I, there was no way out of that for me. When the baby is in your arms, like you don't, I mean, like you remember it, but like the... It's talking about the relative weight of the joy and the sorrow, right? Like, the weight of the sorrow, like, quickly dissipates with the weight of the joy and the substantive joy of having a child born into this world. What Jesus is saying is like, man, you're going to weep and lament, disciples. Like, you have days ahead of you that you don't even understand, and it's going to happen in just a couple hours, and you're already feeling overwhelmed. But you're going to... But when you hold the baby in your arms, when you hold the baby in your arms on the other side of it all, like your sorrow will be turned to joy and 
that joy will far out like strip any of the sorrow that you that you felt. You know, it's what, what Jesus says here is, so, is somewhat surprising. There's a couple clues in here that I think are really interesting for us. He says here in verse um, in verse 22. Oh no, it's not in verse 22. Where is it? I can't find it in my text. I must have it written down here. I don't. Okay. Somewhere it says, I will see you again. Do you guys see where it says that? I'm not seeing it in my... It's in 22. Oh, okay. I thought it was there, but I was stuck on the whole baby thing. Um, <laughs> Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again. You know, it's interesting because he had said... A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me. But now he reverses it. He's not talking about them seeing him. He's talking about him seeing them. Do you guys see that? What he's saying is like, man, when you're in the middle of this sorrow, I'm going to take initiative. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to see you. I'm the one that's going to act to take away your sorrow. In fact, it's, it's echoing things that he's said throughout the book of, throughout the book of John. I mean, this, this, this message up since chapter 13. In chapter 14, it said this. In John chapter 14, 18, and 19, this is one of the places where he kind of echoes the same idea of him taking the initiative. He says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You live also. What Jesus is doing here, and I, could, like, I don't have time to develop this whole argument for you, but I think that there's several clues in this text. What he's saying is like he's talking specifically and concretely about the events that are going to transpire for the disciples in the next like two months. He's going to be talking about his, his betrayal and his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection, like his presence with them, his pouring out of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about specifically and concretely. But he makes these allusions, like in John chapter 14, he's not talking about that. He's talking about like when he comes again. And I think what he's doing for us is he's weaving together the experience of the disciples in those days that were immediately to follow with the experience that we all live in. Because we're in that same boat where we no longer see Jesus, where he's departed from us. We live in a time where there is weeping and lamenting. And I think the, the reason why I think this is important for us is that the, I think what Jesus is telling us is that the emotional experience that the disciples are about to walk through, this kind of unraveling of their life, the weeping and lamenting that came, came along with that, and then the unbelievable joy that comes when they, when they make it through, when he carries them through. Is just, the, is just the movie trailer for what's going to happen for all of us. Because we live in this time of weeping and lamenting and sorrow. He's the one that's going to take the initiative to one day bring an end to it. And we live in this unique time, and we're going to see this at the end of the text, where we already see the evidence of the resurrection. The scriptures talk about it as being the first fruits. The first fruits of the resurrection, where it says that Jesus is the first fruits. The idea of first fruits, it's, the, it's like if you have a garden or you're a farmer and you bring in the first, like, blueberries from your crop, or you bring in the first, what, what's the first thing that happens in the spring when you, what do you harvest? Strawberries. Strawberries. Man, they're really, really good. And you've been like, man, I've been waiting all winter for this, right? 
It's like you get a taste of it, but that taste is also a promise of what's to come. Jesus has you know, told us over and over again that like, the resurrection, his resurrection, is just the foretaste of what's to come. In fact, Paul talks about this idea of, of our, the sufferings of this age and the joys to follow in Romans chapter 8. He says this, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see that imagery? Like the sufferings of this day, you can't even compare them. They don't have the same weight and substance as the glory. And then a couple verses later, he uses the same illustration that Jesus used. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. But not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Like we have the groanings of childbirth waiting eagerly for their, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. I think it goes on. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. What Paul is telling us and what Jesus is telling us is that the sufferings of this age, the weeping and lamenting of the days in which we find ourselves in, are nothing compared to the, the joy that's going to come and even to the joy we can experience today. Because we live in this unique space like where we've already seen the resurrection and where we anticipate it at the same time. You know, I, a couple years ago, back in 2020, uh, I don't know how many of you are, part, are like have been a part of the church for that long, but I went through a really difficult time of burnout. In 2019, both my parents passed away, and my brain was like, if you were here at the church at times, you'd seen me like melt down on multiple occasions up here teaching and like ugly cry. You, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about if you were here. That's why we have Kleenexes everywhere. Um, <laughs> and I, I was given the task of preaching on joy during Advent, which kind of sucks, you know, like uh, when you're struggling like that. And so I really like wrestled with it the whole week. I was just really, really wrestled with even trying to define what joy is. And I came up with this definition of joy, which I'll, I'll, I'll submit it to you as a definition. You can, you can like write it down if you want and test it to see if it like seems to hold truth. But as I really wrestled through what joy was, this is what I came up with. And pardon the corny like alliteration. Maybe it's like the disciples with the whole a little while thing shows that they don't know what they're talking about, but hang with me. Joy is the deep and durable delight in Jesus. What I mean by that, it's deep and substantive because we place our whole life like into his hands and it's durable that we delight in Jesus and we don't let things shake us off of that. It's the deep and durable delight in Jesus Christ that moves us to persevere and to praise and to pursue him as our ultimate satisfaction. It's a different thing than just like happiness or gladness or sometimes what we think of joy, because it's, it's something that's real, but it's not complete. In fact, it moves us to something greater. It moves us to pursue him even more. It's like the foretaste of something that, wants, that causes us to like want it all. C.S. Lewis talks about joy in this way. He, he says this. He says, all joy, as distinct from mere pleasure, still more amusement, emphasizes our pilgrim status. It always reminds, beckons, awakens desire. Our best havings are wantings. I agree with him. Like, I think that 
I think that true substantive joy, like the joy that Jesus is talking about here, is one where we have this delight in Jesus Christ that moves us to persevere and pursue. And I had one more P in there that I can't remember. As praise Him as our ultimate satisfaction. So here's the question before us, you know, as we live in this age that we live in, as, we, as we're able to witness the truth of the resurrection, is your life filled with a delight in Jesus so much that it causes you to pursue and persevere and praise him? Or is something else, are you looking to something else to be the source of your joy? The source of the thing that you delight in that moves your life forward? You know, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, I don't have this on the screen, but it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that we're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross. Do you see that? Joy like moved, propelled Jesus forward. As we enter into 2024, and I just want to invite you back to renewing your delight in Jesus Christ so that it's deep and durable so that it moves you whatever this year holds to persevere and praise and pursue him. And that kind of brings us to our second point. You know, as we kind of renew our faith in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us and the hope that we have because of him, because his joy and hope are inseparably kind of work together and it's the resurrection that hopes. Like Jesus goes on to talk to his disciples about that. And he says this, starting in verse Um, 23. And in that day, you will ask me no question. It's a really interesting statement, verse 23. Jesus is saying, and I think he's talking about that day right after the resurrection. He's like, "When, when you see me raised from the dead, all of these questions that you have will be answered. He's not saying they won't have any questions anymore, but it'll all begin to make sense. Like until we understand the resurrection, like we don't understand Christianity at all. He says, in that day you will ask me no question. Then he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. He's like, when you're living in this time, in this world that we're living in, go to the Father and ask him anything in my name so that you can receive. And I want you to ask and receive so that your joy can be full. Like, I want you to experience the fullness and the depth of the joy that I, like, live my life to, to purchase for you. And the way that that's going to happen, the resource that we have as Christians and going into 2024 is that we can come to the Father and ask in the name of Jesus Christ. And he'll provide for us what we need. But then Jesus does something interesting. He, he, he explains to us a little bit what he means by, well, he tells us what he doesn't mean by asking in his name. Look what he says in verse 24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, um, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. Let me read that last sentence again. I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. 
You're going to pray in my name, and I'm not going to go to the Father for you. What? I thought Jesus was there on my side. I'm not going to go to ask the Father anything on your behalf. But then look what he says. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. He's like, you have this genuine faith, disciples. And because you have this genuine faith in me and in my mission that I came into this world for, like the Father loves you. So you don't need me to go to the Father for you. Like growing up, like my oldest brother and, and me, I'm the youngest, the youngest are always the best, the youngest um, had differing kind of relationships with my father in particular. And my middle brother, he's like the nicest guy in the world. Like you, you, he, he should be your pastor, not me, because he's the nice one. And so we all knew that like, oh, we should send Barry to go talk to my parents, right? Like, because they like him. <laughs> you can understand why, right? No, and Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case. Like the father loves you. If you believe in Jesus Christ and what he came to this world to accomplish, the Father loves you. And you can go directly to him. Many of you have probably heard this quote, but it's such a perfect quote, I couldn't not use it. But Tim Keller said this. I think I have this in here. The only one who dares wake up the king at 3 a.m. and ask for a glass of water is a child. The only one who dares to wake up the king at 3 a.m. and ask for a glass of water is a child. That's what Jesus is saying. It's like because of our faith in his complete work, we can go to the king no matter what time, day or night, because he loves us. He'll care for us. He'll provide what we need. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, Talking about the work of Jesus, it says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Like, don't give up on the truth of the gospel. And then he says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near with what? With confidence to the throne of what? God's grace. So that we can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Jesus is telling his disciples that because of like your relationship with me and, and what I've accomplished and what I'm going to accomplish for you, you can come to the Father yourself and receive grace to help in time of need. That's why, like, Protestants don't call pastors, like my office is, like, priests. Because priests are somebody that intercedes for you, like, is in the middle between God and you. The scriptures say, no, 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 Jesus was that guy. Jesus did everything that was necessary, and Jesus went and sat down, and he's chilling now. And you can, you can draw near to God yourself. And we receive grace to help in time of need. There's a, a friend of mine was preaching on this like, subject last summer, and I, was a, I had the blessing to sit under his ministry and hear his message. And, 
And he, he, he wasn't talking about this text, but he was talking about this idea of access to God as our Father. And he had this image, which some of you may have seen this picture. It's John F. Kennedy and John Jr. He's sitting in the Oval Office, the Resolute Desk, you know, where there's secret treasure maps inside. <laughs> he was so close, yet so far. And he... And, and this is probably the most, like, I mean, maybe like Area 51 or NORAD or something might be more restrictive than this, but there's probably not a room in this world that has as much restriction around it as the Oval Office when the president's in it. And yet, why is John Jr. able just to play around on the desk? Because he's his child. He has access to the throne of grace. He has protection. He has everything that that he needs because he's John F. Kennedy's son. He's there. You know, and that's what Jesus is saying. Like, his work on the cross for us was so significant. It changes our relationship with God forever so that we can receive, we can draw near with confidence. We can wake up the king at 3 a.m. We can find grace and mercy in the time of need. But Jesus doesn't end there. You know, I read up in verse 25 that uh, Jesus has said that there will be a day when he's not going to speak to them in figurative language anymore, that he's going to speak to them like plainly from the Father. And I think that's like, again, following his resurrection. But look at the disciples, again, to show how clueless they are. Verse 29, his disciples said, oh, now you are speaking plainly and you are not using a figure of speech, which is kind of funny because he says there's days going to come verse 25, and they're like, oh, it's already here. Like, we get it. Like, we understand. For now we know that you, for we know that you know all things and you have no need of anyone to question you. By this we believe you came from God. They're like, we get it. We know that you've come from God and you're coming to do this great work that we're expecting you to do. And then Jesus asks, asks this rhetorical question. Do you now believe he wants them to reflect on their faith a little bit. Do you now believe? Is your faith really like complete? Do you really understand? He had just told them that the Father loves them because they do believe, and now he's questioning their belief. I think what he's doing is, and it's interesting because look what Jesus says in verse. And I'm having a problem with my verses. Um, Verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. There's two parts to what Jesus is talking about. There's Christmas. I've come from the Father into the world. And then there's like Easter, right? His death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and everything that comes out of that. Twice, when Jesus talks about their belief, he says, you believe that I came forth from the Father. And the disciples themselves said it. We believe that you've come from the Father, but they never finish it. They have a genuine faith, but it's incomplete because they believe in Christmas, but not Easter. They don't understand the impact and the that, that the resurrection should be having on their life. They don't even know it's going to come yet. They have like genuine but incomplete faith. And look what's going to happen. 
Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone um, because the Father is with me. He's like, you're in complete faith. You're, it's genuine, but it's not fully matured yet. It's going to be shaken and sifted and like stretched until it feels like it's going to break. They're going to strike me down and the sheep are going to be scattered. You're going to, you're going to feel like as if your whole world is, going to un, is unraveling around you. But then he, he finishes it. These things I have spoken to you that in, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage or take heart. I have overcome the world. What Jesus is telling his disciples is like, man, your faith is, is genuine, but it needs to like come to fullness. You need to understand not just the point of my birth, but the, the thing that gives my birth its meaning, which is my death, burial, and resurrection. And, and then as you go through that journey of trying to discover that, like your faith is going to be like, you're just going to be scattered. Like it's going to seem like everything's come to an end. But I want you to have peace. And then he says something interesting, that there's this dual reality that we as Christians live in, as ones that understand the reality of the resurrection, who wait for the future resurrection. In this world, you have tribulation. But in me, you have peace. He's like, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should have this like, peace in the midst of our tribulation. And, but we live in the tension of all of that, trying to navigate what that looks like all the time. What does it look like to have peace amidst the struggles that you're facing health-wise or relationally or as you look at the political landscape around our country and around our world and the wars and rumors of wars that happen every day like that? In me, you have peace. In this world, you have tribulation. We live in this place of this dual reality as Christians, but we can take courage. We can take heart. We can lift up our heads because he has overcome the world. You know, Marv, why don't you come up um, to close us up? But as, you're, as we're doing that, let me, just, let me just encourage you to some things. You know that the secret to living with peace and courage and joy in this troubled world is having a full understanding of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf and having that full understanding worked into every area of your life. And that is a lifelong journey. I think I said this in one of my sermons right before Advent, that, that all of us at some level are unbelievers because there's areas in our life where we haven't really under, like lived out the reality of what the death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, and future hope that we have in Jesus Christ um, is accomplishing for us. In this world, we have tribulation, but take courage. We have overcome the world. We shouldn't be surprised in 2024 when difficult times come. Jesus told us it was going to happen. We shouldn't like set our joys on things that are never going to satisfy us and never going to bring that joy. What Jesus is telling his disciples is like, and you need to keep your eyes focused on me. And even when you lose sight of me, and it seems like all, everything is unraveling, know this, that you can have joy and peace because he has overcome the world. He's going to come back again. 
He's going to make all things right. He's going to put an end to all of our struggle. And as we live in this, like, this dual nature of our reality, we can live as people of joy and hope and peace and love be- as, we, as long as we keep our eyes focused on him. So Marv, why don't you close us, and then I'll close us in prayer, and I'll dismiss you all.